Matthew 22, verse 34 starts with this. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, Well, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, they said to him, He's the son of David. He said, well, then how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, well, how was he then his son? No one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare question him anymore. Let's pray. God, we're not just praying right now because what we're seeking is just to do what church does. We start with prayer before we begin something. But because, Lord, we want to turn to you and we want to ask, Lord, for your will to be done. We know, Lord, that you desire to save. You tell us that you desire all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, to come to repentance and none to perish. Lord, we know that. We also know, Lord, that you desire to equip and to challenge and to grow us up, to mature us and to sanctify us. So you tell us in the Thessalonian letters, First uh, Thessalonians 4, that this is your will for us, our sanctification. You tell us in Ephesians 4 that we no longer be children tossed to and fro. But the cunning craftiness of men, the deceitful plotting and wiles of this world, but rather we would speak the truth in love and we would grow up in unity to be the body you called us to be, Lord. With you, Jesus, is our head. We recognize, Lord, your desire is for us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. To go into all the world and make disciples. To baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You've told us that. But here in this room, Lord, you know that we're in various states, various places in our walk with you. Some, perhaps, have yet to know you as Lord and Savior. And if that be the case today, bring them to salvation. There are those who know you that are young in you. Grow them, as you tell us in First Peter, that to desire the pure milk of the word that they would grow thereby. Oh, Lord, give them a hunger for your word to feast upon it today. For those that are growing, Lord, that we would take what we know and put it into practice, that by reason of use we've exercised our senses to discern right and wrong through your word, God, please, today do so. That we would trust the power of your Holy Spirit and to do things the way you call us to. God, please, today, interface with every one of us right where we're at. Bespoke a word to each of us. May we be captivated in your word and have so much fun in it and redeem every second. God, I pray, including these right now as we pray, that every breath be bringing us closer to you, to a deeper and more meaningful understanding. Lord, of the most fundamental, core, foundational aspect, what you really want from us. So we give you ourselves and ask, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Hearts that are hungry to receive the implanted word that you would inculcate it into our very beings. So Lord, have your way now. 
as you open your hands and pour them upon us, may we be hungry and ready to receive. Commit ourselves to you, Lord, now. And thank you. Thank you so much for being here. God, speak, please. Father, we commit ourselves to you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today is that would any please don't just believe me. Never just assume it's true because I say so or because anyone says so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. Take that beautiful book and test everything to it. Having said that, it's now the Tuesday of Passion Week. Jesus will be tried, arrested two days from now. He'll be murdered three days from now. Five days from now, he'll raise again. It's the Tuesday before the Thursday of his arrest, the Friday of his crucifixion, the Sunday of his resurrection. That's where we're at. It's the Tuesday for the rest of the world for Passover, Pesach, as they would call it. The celebration all the way back from Exodus 12, when God redeemed the nation Israel, pulled them out of the nation of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, out of the hand of the enemy. And on each of these days, heading up to the Passover, there are specific things to be done. The chametz, by the way, on Monday, the day when you drive out the leaven, there's to be no yeast, no leaven in your house during the celebration of Passover. And in the same way, on that Monday, Jesus comes to his house, the temple, and he drives out the money changers, the tax collectors, well, if you will, the retailers out of the courtyard and tells them this was supposed to be a place of prayer. This is not supposed to be a shopping mall. This is not to be a place covered in avarice and greed, but a place where somebody hungry to encounter God would encounter him with no obstacles whatsoever. There's the idea. That was Monday. On Tuesday is the day of inspection where you inspect the lamb. Every one of them is to do so. Every member of the family inspects the lamb because they want to make sure that the lamb to be perfect. And that comes, by the way, all the way up back to Exodus chapter 12. If you're in your Bibles, keep your finger where you are and go there for a moment. It's the second book of the Bible, so it should be relatively easy to find. Genesis being the first and then second being Exodus. And I want you to turn, if you would, to that text, Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 3, God speaks and says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man is to take for himself a lamb. Would you say, a lamb? Thanks. Try it again. A lamb. Okay. According to the house of his father, a lamb, notice again, for a household. Verse 4. And if the household is too small for the lamb, would you say the lamb? Notice the progression. Well, then let him and his neighbors next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your account for the lamb. Notice again, verse 5. Your lamb, would you say your lamb? Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, don't miss this. There's a progression in verses 3 through 5. It goes from a lamb to the lamb to your lamb. And in that, he tells us, you start with you taking a lamb. And that lamb, by the way, well, if your house is too small, well, then share it with your neighbors. Invite them over and say, all right, you guys, we're doing Passover together. After all, we don't want any of this lamb to go to waste. And then from that, 
That lamb can't just be a lamb. That lamb can't just be the lamb. It's the only lamb. But now it has to be your lamb, verse 5. And because of that, there is a requirement to inspect your lamb. Notice, by the time it gets to be yours, it better be perfect. It can be the to anyone at once. But the moment it becomes yours, it better be the perfect one. And I love this about God. Let's jump into that as we get ready for our text. That God has never demanded you to be perfect. He never said for you to inspect you, you personally and make sure that you are without leaven, that you are without sin, that you are without fault. Because really, to be honest, once you've kind of done so, you're kind of stuck. However, you can choose your sacrifice, and that's what he's demanded. And in the same way, when we stand before the living God, God does not demand us to be perfect in and of our own obedience or actions and so forth. Now, this is no license to sin. Romans 6 makes clear we leave who we were behind. But you can pick your sacrifice. And when you ask people, if there is a God out there, since that seems to be debated, I'm, I have no doubt, by the way, and I'm sure that there will be a day that nobody will doubt it either. It would be wiser to choose so now. How do you know you're right with them? How do you know that this God would actually receive you into his home? Don't you find it interesting that Christians are the only people on the planet that aren't self-righteous? If you think about it, everyone else will say, well, I do this, I do, I do, I do. I'm a good person. I'm not as bad as Hitler. After all, I saw this guy and he was crazy and I'm not really as bad as that guy. Notice everything revolves around what you've done. Isn't that what self-righteous is? Yourself made you right. So you've picked as your sacrifice your actions. Are they perfect? Your prayers, are they perfect? Your charity, is it perfect? Your church attendance, is it perfect? The church you belong to, is it perfect? My family, is it perfect? But I choose Jesus. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. The perfect lamb. My lamb. Without blemish, spot, or wrinkle. Without anything. In this same way, these people are inspecting the lamb. They want to make sure that the sacrifice is one of a perfect sacrifice. So with that, in that same way, Jesus, strangely enough, on this Tuesday, is being inspected as well. Each group, if you will, family member, has had a chance to have a shot at Jesus. The authoritarian chief priests start asking Jesus about lordship, about authority. Whose authority are you doing this? Then the Roman soft Herodians with the disciples of the uh, Pharisees that we'll see here ask about Roman tax law. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Then the liberal humanist Sadducees ask Jesus about human marriage and the afterlife, not believing in any afterlife resurrection or anything they couldn't see. Finally, it's the legalist's turn, the Pharisees asking about the law. And in the same way, each part is inspecting the lamb before the lamb is sacrificed. And strangely enough, that lamb knows he's going to be sacrificed. It was the first thing he was called when he emerged in his 30s when John the Baptist said, Look, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So the Pharisees in verse 34 now have their shot. 
It says that when the Pharisees had heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Now, it's important to note, by the way, now it's the Pharisees. They're known as the Bible experts. We've already gone into history in the last couple of weeks about who they were. They were, in essence, the counter movement to the Sadducees. They were, if you will, the back to the Bible group. And they were kind of a really masochistic Sado group in the sense that they had a group of guys that were the ones who hand wrote all of the scripture and thus were called scribes, like we get the word to scribble from it. They were scribes, so they wrote out the scripture, and because they wrote out the scripture, they were considered the experts beyond anyone, the scribes. And from that, the scribes then would then be responsible for doing things called binding and loosing. And what that meant is they read a particular law, and they would start asking, well, how does that apply to normal day life? For instance, classic example, keeping the Sabbath. And they say, well, you can't carry a burden on the Sabbath. So they start asking, well, what's a burden? Well, we have to take, if we will, one of the weakest people, and we have to say, well, we have to make it easy for everyone. We can't um, single out any individual. So we ask, well, what would be heavy for a weakling, if you will? And they came to the decision, two dried figs. Anything heavier than two dried figs, if you were carrying it on a Sabbath, on a Shabbat, by the way, that's a Saturday, well, that was considered carrying a burden. And you can see why then they try to nail a guy for carrying his mat, for instance, that had just been healed. The Pharisees can't see the miracle because they're too busy sniffing out the methodology. And all they see is a guy carrying something heavier than two dried figs. That was binding something to the law. On the other side of it, is it okay, for instance, to pick your nose? I know that sounds kind of crass, but that was actually debated over the last 15 years. The argument is that it's harvesting. I kid you not. And that's kind of farming. We can't have that. You can't spit, by the way, on a Sabbath, because if you spit, it just might fall in the ground. And clearly that's farming because you're watering ground. If you had the freedom, it was called a loosed thing. If, it was, if not, it was considered bound. And now all of a sudden, there were all of these laws. And all of these laws became very, very complicated because now it wasn't just how do I do this. It became, well, here's the 19 volumes on how to keep the Sabbath, for instance. So now there's a debate. And because there's this debate, and by the way, what we'll read in the Gospel of Mark is that this, <clears throat> this uh, lawyer, as we read him here, is a scribe. And again, so he's one of these guys. He's not a lawyer like we would know today, somebody that's going to go into the court and actually handle something in such a way. He was somebody that, in essence, was an expert on the law of Scripture. Now, let me kind of make a couple of things clear here. This development's to hope, in hopes that it'll just make the simplicity of the rest of the text. We have those kind of historical kind of confines within our own church services. Imagine if we started with food. Some of you might really love that, to be honest. I don't think I'd hate that. Instead of singing. But there's some that say, it just doesn't feel like church. What if we did singing at the end? What if there was a time where everyone needed to jog around the building? Well, no doubt our youngest daughter would have a problem with that. We have our own confines, things that are expected. I mean, let's face it, uh, for me to walk into a traditional Church of England with a hat on would be kind of considered a faux pas to some. The reason I say that is we already have our own unspoken things. Let's face it, in certain churches, if you, st if you stand up and clap, they may call the ushers and others. If you don't stand up and clap, they actually think you must not be spirit-filled. I mean, there are these sort of unspoken social agendas that kind of we have. So we have those too. And it gets so complicated and so convoluted. What does the world think when they see Christianity? What is it that they think we're about? 
we were at the antiques fair at, um, I don't know if you even want to call it that, stalls that are set up in Greenwich where they, you know, pull things out of their house and sell them. But, you know, they're old, so I guess they qualify. And there was a guy that was kind of going off, and he was just so, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, there was this historical thing. Because we're looking at, actually, a thing called the Passover Haggadah, which is, in essence, how to do it. You know, it's like for the, it's like DIY Passover is kind of the idea. And so I'm looking at this thing. It's in Hebrew, and I'm, you know, I have an Israeli backpack, and I'm like kind of looking at this thing. They have no idea. And the guy's trying to be kind of intelligent about it, and he's kind of going, yeah, but I'm part of the Church of England, and we don't, we don't have any requirements. You can do whatever you want, and it's great. It's like church for the unreligious. And I'm like, do you have to believe in God? Oh, you don't have to believe in God. You don't have to do any of that. I'm thinking, wow, that's the strangest thing. There's no definition left. And so if the world will look and say, what does it really mean to be a Christian? What does that mean? Well, let's be honest, the reason it'd be so convoluted in question is, to be honest, because, well, what if we were all to sit together? Would we have the same answer, too? What does God really want? I mean, if God were really to lay it and we were to sit down with him, would that be even the first question we would ask? What do you really want from me? Or would the first question be something like, why, what happened to my grandmother? You know, why that? Or why is there so much suffering in the world? Or, you know, is Putin really the Antichrist? I mean, or whatever. I mean, you know. Is Trump really who he says he is? I mean, the, the crazy questions we would ask that really, in essence, aren't going to mean much eight years from now unless something really radical happens. But somewhere down the line, would we really sit with God and go, God, if I really wanted to make you happy, what is it the one thing you really, really want? And Jesus knows this. He's set up for it in here. And inspecting the lamb, we read now that they've gathered together. Now, one other quick thing, just so that at least you get to kind of a conference uh, background to a little backstory. Perhaps you're familiar with Antiochus Epiphanes. In the 160s BC, thought himself God incarnate and outlawed any other religion. In essence, he was in essence a, a sort of a predecessor to the Antichrist. And he had this, he had statues of himself made and he put them everywhere for people to bow down. Uh, it was the start of a revolution that ultimately we get Hanukkah from, where these renegade priests wouldn't bow down to him. But in, in the midst of all of this, he outlawed the reading of the Torah, which was something that was done every year uh, throughout the first five books of Scripture, same five books we have. And they would read through them. They broke it up into sections so that, and, you know, like we have the once a year Bible, or well, actually, hopefully it's not the once a year, oh, you know. Full, how do we do that? Bible in a year, however we call it. Uh, they did that with the first five books. And then he outlawed that. It wasn't allowed. So what they did is they took the rest of it, primarily that of the prophets, and they took that portion and they read that because somehow uh, Antiochus Epiphanes did not forbid that. And so they called that the Haftorah. So by the time that that was actually reinstated, the Torah reading was actually reinstated and allowed, they just added it to it, so they did both. So they would call it the Torah, the Haftorah, or if you will, we would call it the Law and the Prophets. So Jesus is constantly referring to it. We might just say it this way, the Old Testament. The entirety of Scripture at the time that Jesus was speaking completely agrees with it. When he says something like, on this hangs all of the Law and the Prophets, he's going, the entire Old Testament hangs on this. That's the way we would look at it. Now in our text, this is what we read in verse 34. When the Pharisees had heard that he had silenced, a real fun word for what it's worth, the word is fimaho. Fimaho means to muzzle an animal. So these guys have all come at Jesus, and Jesus has, in essence, clamped their mouth shut, is the idea here. It says that they gather together. So they have their huddle, if you will, their scrum. And in their particular time here, they're trying to figure out how to trap God. The experts, the Bible experts, are going to try to trap Jesus. Now let me ask you, could that happen today? If Jesus were walking in the flesh among us, do you think that there would be a group of resident theologians somewhere that would have such a problem with him that they will have met together to try to prove why he's an, he's an nincompoop? I actually do believe that that would be the case. 
strange for what it's worth, in Proverbs 21.30, it does say that there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. And God's, God's like, look, at in the end of it all, it really isn't wisdom. It really isn't understanding. The word is tabun, by the way. It means intelligence. God's like, there really isn't any brilliance outside of me. Nor counsel, advice, or purpose is the word for what it's worth. It's against the Lord. So we can give God our greatest problems. We can give God our greatest fears. We can give God, by the way, our greatest sins and our greatest filth. And because God is an overcomer, he will overcome all of those things. But what's strange is we can give God our greatest obstacle, and he'll get over that too. There's nothing that's going to stop God from coming to you other than your refusal to receive him. So then one of them, verse 35, a lawyer, comes and asks him a question because he came to test him. Do you see the word testing him there in verse 35? The word test for what it's worth is the word pierazzo. Pierazzo comes from the root word which means to pierce. And you kind of get the idea of this. Why, how would you test something? Let me ask you this. You give me an answer. What would you pierce to test it? What's that? Cake. Well, yeah, in your case, you would definitely, there's a baker for you. Yeah, you, But it, you better buy the piece first or you're going to be in a little bit of trouble. Pierce it in the sense of making sure it's fully cooked. Sure, I could see that. Is there anything else you would pierce through to make sure that it was actually what it says it was? <laughs> chicken. Oh, man, I bet we better be going to lunch after this or we're in trouble. We've got cake and chicken. How about money? Could you imagine in the days we have gold-plated things today? And people that are always telling you this is pure gold, for instance, imagine if you were able to pierce through it and actually be able to see whether it's actually gold-plated or it's actually really fully gold. Well, in those days, you made coins, and you could certainly cover them in another, uh, another item. You usually, you could use something like a base metal, like lead or tin, covered in gold or silver, and pass them off as these. And two different ways you did that was you did it through money weighing, which is the term that is used for testing all things in First John, and this particular thing of piercing through. Pierazzo is the word here. So these particular guys, I notice he's, an, he's a lawyer, he's an expert in the law, has come, and as he's come, he's come in essence to pierce through Jesus to make sure if he's fully cooked, feel, but to make sure that he's basically what appears on the outside is actually what appears on the inside is the idea. And he thinks that this question is going to do it. I think that's interesting. But he does tell us he's a lawyer. Now, in, in essence, that means that this particular group of people, what they're known for, I guess, it, more than anything, is the law. Now, consider this, if you will, that they counted the letters of the Ten Commandments. And then they counted the letters of the Ten Commandments. They came up with a number, and the number is 613. Strange as it is, then they counted all the commandments that are actually in the Torah, and guess what they came up with? 613. So that's sort of their magic number for that, if you will. So of the 613 laws, then they had to break them up into, like we might say, felonies and misdemeanors. Those that are really big laws, for instance, those kind of things that God would give capital punishment for, and those other things that might do something more in the area of shaming. And so as they broke those up, then you've got these scribes that are the experts, and they're becoming, if you will, the theological rock stars of the day. And it became the debate of, well, to be honest, if a scribe came up with something, they actually believed in some cases that his conclusion was actually more important than a lighter or misdemeanor law, if you will, for what it's worth. And so we get that today. There's certainly teachers out there that it just seems like you just assume it's scripture when they speak prayerfully. That's not the case with me. Unless you hear this, study the word, study and show yourself approved and test all things by it. Hold on to the good and avoid all types of evil. That's what scripture says. Now, with that in mind, of those, you know, 613 uh, commandments, by the way, 365 of them are prohibitive. In other words, they tell you, don't do this, thou shalt not. 
if you will, which makes it then 248 of them are exorcible. In other words, they tell you to do something. So with all of that in mind, it gets to this point that every one of those is developed and it's developed. And now you're like, this whole thing just becomes so crazy. Get me down to what this is really about. Now, to these guys, it has to be the law. Now, there are certain parts of our fellowship, and I don't mean that by church here, but in regards to the church in mass, what they're really known for is some doctrinal bend. Let's be honest. They're kind of the doctrinal bend people. You know that if you're going to go there, they're going to pound this point into your head one way or another. They're the spiritual guys. Now, not that the rest aren't spiritual, but there are those that we want to make sure that when you get there, you're going to have an experience, some kind of experience. And as long as you have an experience, God must be there. And if you kind of sit there and you don't get the tingles or the shakes or the whatever, and again, I'm not insulting any of this, but you just kind of know if you really want an experience, that's the place to go because that's really. And so people go, oh, you're the experienced guys. Oh, you guys are the, you know, you, you guys are the kind of wear the robes and like the incense guys. I mean, and there's kind of the things that kind of tucks it in. And, you know, and then you get people like us, the Calvary, and they don't know where in the world to shove us. They're like, I don't know, you, you, you blow out all the doors on these things. You kind of all of these things to some degree. And the reason I say that is these guys, they were about the law. So when there's an accident, some kind of horrible situation has happened. And in this horrible situation, there is somebody and they're laying there bleeding. And another person is next to them. Let's say it's been some form of car accident. The car is, is, is bumped into a bike, uh, somebody on a bike. The person on the bike is laying there. They're clearly in a very bad way. Different emergency sets of people show up, emergency services. On one side, there are the police. They've come because they need to find out who's at fault here because ultimately they need to punish the wrong. Does that make sense? But they're not the only people who show up. In a situation like this, there are also the paramedics. The paramedics are also there, but they're there to make sure that they're, they're there, first of all, to find out who's really hurt. And as they're there to find out who's really hurt, they ask what's needed to help them get better. Now, let me ask you, when a problem hits in life, which one would you be more apt to be? Would you be more apt to be the policeman or the paramedic? Because that says a lot about where you would fit into the story. Me too, by the way. When I see the situation, the first thing I'm looking for is fault. Is that what I'm doing? I'm going, well, who did it? Why did they do it? Where's the first thing I'm looking for? Who's hurt and how do I help that? Now, both are needed, by the way. But in there, I've learned that Jesus has this habit of rescuing before he rebukes, for what it's worth. But he doesn't pull punches in either. Grace and truth did come from our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in our text, then they come to him. When this guy's kind of known for his law, and he comes to him and he asks him, then, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? That's where he's going to go with this. And again, imagine, if you will, all of these church groups are together and Jesus, you know, they're asking, what's the most important thing? Why were we created? What is the sum of our religion? What is it here? And Jesus is going to boil down to, if this thing were right, the rest of your religion is going to fall in line. And I don't know what you've been told. What were you created for? Because we get our answers from church, if you will. Some will tell you that you were created to worship God. Some will tell you you were created to serve God. Some say, well, you were created to glorify God. And then Jesus has an answer here, too. But let me ask you this. If we go back to the first three chapters of Genesis... If we were created to worship God, sing praises to him and do it in such a manner where we were. Well, then let me ask you, when is the first song written in scripture? Do you realize it's not until Exodus 15? Not only after they got out of Egypt, but after God, if you will, then drowns the enemy army. Then Moses writes that the same guy that says he's a bad speaker becomes the first songwriter in scripture. How is that? 
If God said we were created for that, well, it sounds like somewhere we're lagging. How about if we were created to serve God? If we were created to serve God, wouldn't God have made man on the first day and then told him to get to work? Why is it we don't really see man work until after the fall? If we were created to glorify God, well, then somewhere in there, where does God send us to start representing him? But when God creates man, what's the next thing God does? He takes the day off. What do you think he made you? He didn't make you to serve him, though serving him is great. He didn't make you to worship him, though worshiping him is great. He didn't make you to glorify him, though glorifying him is great. He made you to love him. And that's what we see in our text. He created you to love him. The rest of the things are going to fall into sea. We have two children, adopted one. One is by biological, however you want to put that. They're both just as much a daughter as the other. They're both as opposite of each other as they could be, but they're both very much sisters. We certainly didn't have children so they would worship us, show us how valuable we were, how important we were. That would have been kind of sick and weird, wouldn't it? We didn't create them to serve. Boy, that would have been crazier. Imagine, I look at our first one especially, and I think looking at my wife and saying, oh, honey, if we had a bunch of these, think of what we could get done around the house. That would be crazy, and some of you know how crazy that would be. We didn't look and go, you know, if we could just get a bunch of these around, the whole world could know who we are. We had children because we had so much love for each other and for God that we had to give it, put it somewhere. So God, give us more. A place to dump our love that they could take that love and then offer it back. And I'm an evil human being. And God's not. So I'm a poor reflection, but a reflection nonetheless. He did not create you to do anything but love him. And in loving him, you will serve him. And in loving him, you will glorify him. And in loving him, you will worship him because he's worthy of those things. But first and foremost, you could put any of those things at the front. And what you have at that point is a car with no engine. Because the thing that will drive you is love. And he puts it here in three. Of course, we'll see it in four in Mark. But he tells us three things. And I've got to tell you, this is a really healthy thing for me, and I need to do this more often than not. Ask myself, really, what would it be like to love you like this with all? I've got to be honest. In my walks this week, and you probably know that, I spend a lot of time walking the word where I'm like asking, all right, Lord, it's one thing to be able to say, okay, I think we've got kind of the basic intellectual property of this to hand out. But, but, but in regards to my own life, my prayer, to be honest, has been, God, am I even loving you with most of these things? I'd really be happy at this moment if I hit most on these and I knew I was in the trajectory of going greater. And he goes, God, if you've given me everything, what can I give you in return? And God says, how about your love? And they say, uh, can I make up the answer to that? And don't we do that? We can think we're doing so well because we've made up the ground rules on it. And instead, God makes really clear there's three things here. And this is really as far as I intend on going today. We'll develop the rest, in essence, next week as we start looking at how Jesus really goes off on the religious leaders who have clearly represented something antithetical to this. 
My prayer as we go through this quickly is that you would hear God speak to your heart as he's spoken to mine. Say, this is what I really want. Your name here. Let's worry about the rest later. Let's get this first. I've seen some friends of mine who have gotten the, and I don't want to, so I'm just going to use it as, I'm going to variate from the theme. They've gotten sort of a smart watch where it does an awful lot of things. They can check their emails, and I think they can land a plane from it. But I have a friend who's got one, and the one thing he can't seem to figure out how to do on it, strangely enough, is tell time. And it's the funniest thing to me in the world, because I'll ask what time it is, and he'll just kind of look, and he's like, he has to go on the Internet to go find some clock site. And I think, I, well, then why don't you just call it then like in like an eye wrist or something. I mean, the, the whole point is, it, the word watch is in there. I would assume the first thing would be a watch and then everything else would kind of go after that. And the only reason I say that is is that that would be really silly, especially if it didn't tell time ever. But what about us if we were like that as Christians? Well, we did like all these other really cool things. We had all these really cool accessories and we had these apps embedded into us where we could sing really well or bake really well or do some really cool things and make really awesome bulletins or whatever. But then in the end of it all, we did all these things, but we didn't really do the one thing that kind of really mattered. So case in point, let's just say that John meets this girl and she's really, really amazing and he, he Pursues her, makes clear that in every way that he's the man to be trusted, that he's sacrificial and he's committed to her, and he's really, really proven himself. And she's somewhere in this decided she's going to say that she's married to him. So she buys the ring herself, runs around and calls herself, Is John, what's your surname, John? Will's your, what's your? Okay, yeah. Okay, okay. We're anonymous. This is Mr. Anonymous Wilshire. Uh, so in the end of all this, she buys the ring and she runs around and she starts telling people. She gets a house and she makes it really, really nice. She puts Mr. and Mrs. Wilshire up in the you know thing. She you know she gets pictures of herself and super in beds, if you will, his face on there through you know. And then she changes her Facebook status to married. You know, somewhere down the line, she looks and tries to find a couple cute kids online, takes their pictures and decides to put some pictures like that in there. But she's still living alone. And sooner or later, somewhere down the line, you kind of get this like. A little nervous feeling about the gal because there's a, clearly a, del- a delusional aspect of it. And let's say in all of that, you know, she's making she's making the bed, she's doing laundry, she's doing all these things that makes her somehow feel like some kind of 1950s wife. She's done all of these things, but in the end of it all, there's some part of you that kind of goes, uh, um, you're kind of missing the fundamental aspect of it. You may have taken his surname. You may have even in that put some pictures in there and all of this, but you're missing the relationship. And and all of that stuff means so little. It's even daft and weird if it doesn't have that relationship involved. And I I would think that that's just strange. And I wonder what the world would see if they looked at us and saw us do that. You know, we kind of, well, I've got the ring. That's like the Holy Spirit's power, right? And he's kind of embedded in us. And, oh, we're doing all this stuff. But if you suppose that we spend time with him, I I went to his house. Well, was he there? Well, it wasn't necessary. I don't know. I really didn't ask. I didn't seek him. Just kind of popped by the house for a moment, sang a couple songs, read a little bit of his autobiography, and then they kind of left. And you go, wow, bride of Christ. Like, I'm missing something here. And I could see the Lord going, could I have your love? Because if I had your love, this is all going to work out. 
well, well, what does that mean? If I loved you, how much of my time do you want? How much my do you want my money? Is that what you're looking for? Is that what this is about? They was kind of put it into three things. First of all, with all your heart. Now we've got a cultural fun thing to have, right? Because in the Old Testament, the center of your emotions was your bowels. Now that's going to be really funny on a Valentine's card. Uh, you know, and then you have this, in the levav, the insides is the idea. When it says, for instance, that man looks at the outer appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, the levav, the insides. And I kind of look at this and I start going, well, what does Scripture say about the heart? And there's this verse that just keeps jumping out. I mean, I keep looking, okay, I get the idea. You know the first time God introduced the heart in Scripture? I find it really interesting. The first time God introduced the heart in Scripture is in Genesis 6, 5, when it says every intent of the thought of the hearts were continually evil all the time. The first time God spoke about a heart, it was actually at a point when it was completely polluted and not God-centered. That's weird to me. Second time, by the way, was when his, in the following verse, was grieved. I read that Pharaoh could harden his heart, and then God would actually strengthen that conviction. He would stir hearts. He would touch hearts. Leviticus went out to hate a brother in our heart, to put that limit on there, if you will. But this particular verse keeps standing out to me. And it's Psalm 119.11, where he says, Your word I've hidden in my heart, that I would not sin against you. And then I get to this Proverbs 4.23, and it all blows wide open. When it says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. I mean, I'm, I read 771 different references in 57 books. 771 times the word is mentioned. It's a lot of reading, but good reading. I wanted to read every verse on it. I get this verse, and he tells us this. To keep your heart with all diligence. A couple words, and I'll develop this for a moment, because it really helps me understand this, and prayerfully you as well. The word keep is the word natsar. Natsar, by the way, if you will, there's different words for guard. There's a guard from escape. You've arrested someone. You don't want them escaping. That's a different word altogether, Shimon. But then there's this word that you guard something precious. Like you would do that. Perhaps you walk by somebody a little bit wonky on the street and you kind of check your pockets really quick to make sure your wallet and your phone are there. Well, you've just, in essence, tried to guard yourself. Well, that word, by the way, is the word that's our, That's the word that's used here. This heart thing is not about your heart escaping. At this point, you're guarding from invasion, from pollution. This is guard your heart with all Diligence. And the word diligence, interesting enough, is the word mishmar. Try that word. Mishmar. Try that. Mishmar. Mishmar, by the way, is actually a person that's a guard. In the first case, it's an action. And in the second case, if you will, it's actually somebody that's hired for that job. So might I say it this way? Is if God were to say to Bruno, say, Bruno, I want you to protect your heart with every guard you have on duty. Actually, on duty or not, always have them on duty. So whatever this is that could possibly invade has to be such a concern or how valuable this thing is that you're willing to protect it with everything you've got. That's the idea. Because he says, for out of it, spring the issues. And that's the word that hit me. The word issues is the word totsa'a. Try that word, totsa'a. Totsa'a literally means exit or boundaries. And I like that. So he says, look at You've got this thing. Could you imagine if we had learned this when we were like 12, how much better our lives would have been already? But at 12, someone said, look, do you have this precious thing? Of course, at 12, which one of us would have listened? Let's be honest, right? Yeah, thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. I'm doing my own thing. 
Okay, but imagine there's this thing and it's precious. This thing is ultimately going to set your boundaries. This is going to be the thing that says this is where we stop this. So because of that, this thing needs to be guarded. And not just lightly guarded. I mean, could you imagine something that you would possess, something that you would own that would be so valuable that you wouldn't just stick it in a safe, but you do like the safe and the laser lights, you know, and the like, you know, the whole bit and the glass and then a whole army surrounding it. And then, you know, after all of that, you've got, you know, you put it on an island and you surround it with sharks. And then, you know, and then you have you know, water mines and all that. Imagine what would this thing be? God's like, this thing should be your heart because this is what's going to set your limits. And I think, wow, if I had ever done that, ever once, what would I protect it from? From influence. From influences that would say that this boundary really shouldn't be there or, oh, come on. And think of the regrets we have because we're like, you know, someone said, oh, come on, just give this a try. What's the big deal? And And our heart says, no, 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 no. So what if I worshipped God? If I, if I did more than that, I loved him with all of my boundaries. In other words, I loved him with my no. The moment I married my wife, and you're probably aware of the fact, next week it will be 27 years. And I agreed to spend the rest of my life saying no, but not to her, to a lot of other things. A lot of other things that in any way were in competition with the position that only she rightly deserves. And I worship her with my... And, and I don't mean that in a sense I worship her like, oh, you're great and awesome. I show her value. That's what the word means. In the no's that I say outside. When somebody sits a little too close, somebody's being a little too nice, or whatever the case is, or you know that this opportunity is going to be, in one way or another, a wonky opportunity, you, in essence, you love someone with your no. Does that make any sense? And God's saying... If you would lo- what I really want is if you'd love me with your no, with a heart that sets real limits. But then there's more than that. I mean, if I really loved God with all of my heart, I would never step beyond a place that I thought would grieve his heart. You know, people ever do this where you're like, well, is this bad? I'm not really sure if this is bad or not. Well, then what do you do? Imagine me saying, well, I'm not really sure if this is going to break my wife's heart, but I think I'll give it a shot anyway. She'll heal. I mean, what would that look like? Do you see what it means to love someone with, and I don't know, like, God, do I, I mean, if I'm just being honest, do I really love you with even just most of my heart? Do my boundaries and borders really represent a heart that really says yours? Because I know that's what you're looking at. And you're desiring, according to Second Chronicles 69, to show yourself strong to those whose hearts are really yours. But he also says, with all your soul. A word that's used 302 times, less than half that of heart, clearly, but still in 39 books. And I look at that and I realize, well, what does that mean? I mean, we kind of get these terms, where we have this heart, and we have this soul, and we have this mind. Well, where does the mind stop and the soul start? And we can try to get spiritual and kind of get ethereal with it, but then I just tried to go through Scripture, so I read through 302 verses that had the word soul in it. I'm going to read you a handful of verses here, and then you tell me if they have anything in common. The first time it's mentioned is in Genesis 34, 3, or the second time, if you will, when Shechem says his soul was strongly attracted to Dinah. 
comparing that to Numbers 21, where they, the people of Israel say in verse 5, Our soul abhors this worthless bread. Psalm 42, 1, If the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for you, or pants for you. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63, 1, O oh God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there's no water. Psalm 63, 5. My soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Psalm 107, verse 9. He satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Psalm 143, 6. I spread out my hands to you, my soul longs for you like a thirsty land. Salah. Proverbs 10.3 The Lord will not allow the righteous soul to famish, but he casts away the desire of the wicked. Proverbs 13.25 The righteous soul, I'm sorry, the righteous eat to the satisfying of his soul, but the stomach of the wicked shall be in want. Proverbs 27.7 One of my favorite verses. The satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb. But to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. Let me ask you, what do all these verses have in common in regards to the soul? What does it refer to? The appetite. Do you see that? My soul longs for you. I hunger for you. I thirst for you. And you will satisfy us with the very best. The hungry soul will even take that which is bitter and try to make it sweet. This verse is the satisfied soul that would even loathe the thing that seems to be dessert. I realize the soul is the other side of the heart. The soul is the yes. The soul is the part that craves it. The soul is the part that says, oh, I want this. These are my appetites. The seed of my appetites sit at my soul. And I ask, do I really love God with the majority of my appetites? Am I really seeking to let God be the one who satisfies? Or am I trying to find it somewhere else? And go again, God's put honest Genuine appetites in us. Appetites for purpose and importance, for companionship and love. But am I really looking to somewhere else to find something that God actually created so that I would cry out to Him? Because there are beautiful but sorry substitutes. Let's be honest. If I married my wife to fill a hole that I needed for companionship, she will never fill it. Not because she's not awesome, but because she's not God. For importance, for purpose. God placed every appetite inside of you at the core of your soul so you would cry out to him because the hole is only big enough for him to fill. Let me just ask, what would it be like if for ten minutes we worshiped God with all of our soul? We loved him with all of our soul. Every appetite be directed to him. What would that do? So the soul sets the appetite and the heart sets the plate size. I worship God with my yes. I want. I need. How many times have I told God I wanted and I needed something that I really, to be honest, barely wanted and certainly didn't need but what I needed was, that, was this appetite meant that I was trying to ask God to fill. Imagine that. Me asking God to get me his replacement. 
How sad would that be? But what would it be like if today I asked God to change that? That takes me to the third of them with all my mind. It's used 88 times in 32 books. For what it's worth, the word thought also in 32 books, but used even more 100 times. And I realize God talks about a loyal mind, a willing mind. Then I get to Psalm 10, verse 4, and it tells us that of the wicked, they don't seek God and he's in none of their thoughts. None of them. But you know this. Have you ever met somebody in love? It doesn't matter what you're talking about. They'll bring in this person. Have you noticed that? They may not even notice they're in love, but you know it. And sometimes you can even create the most horrific of experiences just to see how they fit this girl in now. I just saw this horrible thing on the news. Fifteen people mangled. And there was just things were strewn everywhere. And he's like, oh, man, that just reminds me. This girl, she, was, she saw another accident. And my heart's just mangled and thrown all over the place. Now my life's all about, oh, man. It is amazing how you can fit them into any situation and try to make it nicer. It's like you're painting this, like, gray situation. And they're there with bright colors going, whoa, 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 whoa. With, like, water balloons full of them, right? And it doesn't matter. And you're like, here's, like, grim, suffering, horrible, you know. And they're, like, there with an accordion going, happy, 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 happy. And, and the reason I say that is, is that's what God is because according to Zephaniah 3.17, it tells us that he rejoices over us with singing. Do you get that? I'm like, God, life is miserable. And he's like, I just love you. Now I'm thinking, maybe you hate that sound, but there's something that makes me smile when I hear it. Now what it would be like to be with, to hear God sing like that. And to be honest, I'm sure I would hear it more if I was busy spending less time whining and more time listening. Oh my God, what do you really want? God's like, will you just love me? Oh, I, I love you, God. Oh, man, if you just knew how much I love you. For this moment, I was singing and I was excited and feeling good. And I'm like, God, I love you because I have this, this momentary experience of emotion. And I'm like, God, whoa. But I'm going to love my sandwich in an hour. Or my chicken or my cake or whatever, you know, Nando's or, oh, I love Nando's or whatever. But in the end of it, God's like, is that really, that's it? Because I've had some great meals and I've gone, oh, this is so good. And I'm like, God's like, but you don't set your boundaries on that. You may set your appetite on it, but let's face it, you're going to be hungry again. It doesn't matter what kind of food you eat. He's like, you know. If you came to me thirsty but believed in me, you'd become a torrent of living water. It wouldn't just be that I'd quench the thirst. I'd actually make you a fountain so that other thirsty souls could come. You can't get more quenched than that. To a woman who just came up at, mid, at noonday, at midday, just to go and fill her bucket. He says, man, you're going to keep doing this all the time. Because something inside of you, something inside of you, knows this experience with life, doesn't it? This is a loose paraphrase. It's John 4, but look at it on your own. And I'm, by the way, I'm almost done here. I just want you to know that. And he goes, let me... She's like, well, I, I kind of think you're a prophet. I'd really, really... I'd, I'd love that water. I'd, re- I'd, I'd love that if I didn't have to keep coming to this well. And Jesus is going not for the temporary thirst of the moment, but he's going to the real thirst inside of her, this, the part of her soul that's really really desperate that's at this moment parched and and she looks and she goes can i have that and he goes okay well then let's go let's get to that well then let's go call your husband and she's like i I really don't have one jesus is like yeah you're on guy number six 
You've been married five times. And now you're just living with some guy. You're so done even with the marriage thing. But the crazy part is, though you've given up on marriage, you haven't given up on guys because you're still living with one. You know why? Because it's really the only well you know. But do you see that? Jesus is looking, and he's looking into her soul. She's going, I mean, the girl has no idea. She showed up not expecting a Jewish guy to sit there. She's a Samaritan. They don't talk. And she shows up at the well. It's noon. That means she's even showed up late for all these other Samaritan girls. She doesn't even talk with them. She's kind of the loner at the moment. And you can kind of see her life's been one that even among the Samaritans, they, they kind of talk weird about her. And she kind of shows up, and he's there, and he's like, give me some water. And she's like, what? You, you guys don't even talk with us. We're like lowlifes to you. And he gets into this conversation, and he goes, well, let's talk about the issue. You came here because you're thirsty, right? Yeah, well, I get that. Okay. Wouldn't it be great if you were never thirsty again? Wouldn't it be great if that was really met? She's like, oh, that would be so great. I would love to not have to come to this well anymore. You don't know how hard this is. Even the scowling that I have to get on my way here. He's like, let's get to the real well. You tired of being thirsty there? You dump your soul, you grab your bucket and you dump it into somebody else and you pull it up and maybe for the moment it's a lot of water. And then you went, sometimes you went to dig in and you really pulled up and it was nothing or even worse yet, you went to the wall and it wasn't there anymore. The ball says, we're done, I'm moving well. And then you're like standing there feeling like a doofus with your bucket in your hand going, now what do I do? I feel so empty. And there's this weird freak out you have at this moment isn't there because you're like my goodness i'm like without my bucket's empty and i don't even know where to go so it's almost like you start running around with life looking for a place to put that bucket and jesus like aren't you tired of doing that because the thirst that you have i i I created that thirst so you could have it met you know, when God speaks in Revelation and he speaks to a church that actually, to be honest, reminds me a lot of Calvary Chapel uh, in the sense that <clears throat> he's, it's the first church. It's the church of Ephesus for what it's worth. And he says, I, I, look at, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you can't bear those that are evil. And you've tested those who say they're apostles and have not. And you've found them out to be liars. You've proven all that. You've persevered. You've had it. You've had patience and you've labored even for my namesake and you've even become weary. And I'd say, wow, this sounds like an amazing write-up. This is the report card I'd want to come home with until he says, but nevertheless. And that's a really sad word at that point, isn't it? Because you're like, oh, this is good. And then this. But you left your first love. God's like, you're doing so many of the right things. Except the most important the church of Ephesus, you could see God saying, Martha, Martha, I love the sandwiches. I love the work. The work you're doing is, is it's right. But I miss you. And all that you're doing, I, I, I miss you. And I tell you, I, I ask God, are you in my first love? Did I just try to add you into things? Or, and he's like, that's why I let the old guy die. So that in this new birth that I gave you, I could be your first love. And if you want to go back to that old life, I'll never be your first love there, will I? You've got other things that already held your heart. But in this new life, 
It starts with me, doesn't it? Doesn't it? And, and look at this isn't to bum me out. This is actually to realize, isn't it amazing to think I've got a God, this is what he wants from me? Does he want me to go kill a bunch of people and claim their land? He doesn't want me just to go and sit out somewhere and eat bugs or yogurt or whatever and in some uncomfortable position so my legs fall asleep. These days that's quicker than it used to be. And then somehow in it think I've performed well enough. Just make these trips and do these things and give all of this stuff and all of this. And then the end of it all I ask, is my performance good enough for you? Will I get some form of applause? And God's like, look, at none of, I don't want you to do anything for me. I want you to do everything with me. That's the reason I made you. And, and don't miss that. Because I don't want you to just show up one day and then go, have we met? This is good enough. God's like, all those wasted years where we could have just done stuff. I've got a daughter who's 19. I don't look back and ever think of all the things she's done for me and they're a trophy somehow in a case. The things I cherish the most, the most by far with either of my children and my wife are memories we've made when we were together. Those moments when, to be honest, it would seemingly be insignificant to the rest of the world. It was something that made us giggle that seems silly at the moment, but all I remember is the giggling now. I may not even remember what it was that made us laugh, but I loved the moment. I don't think I'm that weird in that. I think I'm probably like you in that. And I think of sometimes if I really stretched my mind to think, did they really try to do something for me? That means so much less. The whole loving our neighbors ourselves, we can develop that maybe even next week as we kind of get to the heart of all this, but I don't want to go beyond this, to be honest, because I feel like there's too much for us to deal with personally in this. We have a God that actually would be blessed if you just said yes to him. And you said no to the things that challenge him, that are competition with him. The mind, if I look at it in the simplest sense, if we were to go through this in the simplest sense, I mean, the heart says no, the soul says yes, and the mind is really the administrator of the vine that actually just makes the decision of where those things jump in. And if his thoughts outnumber me like the sand on the shore, God's clearly infatuated with me. And his soul craves me. And his heart is grieved every time I would do anything that would turn away from him because he, strange as it is, I'm also his love. My God loves me. And the one thing he's asking is love. And I just, I just want to pray for you and for me right now as we go to prayer. And I realize we've kind of dragged this out a little bit long, but I don't know how to cut that short at a time when this is what we're looking at. I mean, what if that became the core of everything today? I said, Lord, before anything else, I, can I just, I don't even know if I know how to give you my love like you really deserve to have, but I know this, if I loved you with what I said no to, and I loved you with what I said yes to, and I loved you with what I filled my mind with to give me proper clarity on what to say yes and no to. I get why then God tells us at least ten times in the New Testament to be sober or sober-minded, because if our mind really does help make the decision of the yes and no, well, then it really better be on its, on its game. And if I'm to guard my heart with everything I've got, well, then that brain needs to be proper. I have no time to take off on that.
but to fill it with his word because I know that I'm going to be challenged at every turn outside of this world. With every temptation, I will be challenged to say yes or no a hundred million, well, a hundred to a million times a day. It all depends on where you live and what you do, but let's be honest, in every decision we have to say yes or no, it's going to show whether we love him or not. So as we go to prayer, we close this up. What about you? Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? Because what's clear is that the Father loved you so much that he gave up everything he had just so that you could be his. Because that's what he really wants. And I've kind of learned this. If I really loved God with all my heart and all my soul, I think I would say yes and no to you in a different way. In the simplest sense of loving your neighbor to self, and he pulls from that Leviticus 19, the same thing, by the way, that Halal would say everything really hangs on. He would say, in the, the, I think he calls it the kernel of, of all the truths of the law. If I just didn't put me above you and I put God above everything, this whole thing's going to work out. And I wouldn't be asking. I'm so glad my wife didn't say, so what, you like, you want all my money? Oh, it'd be easy for me to say that to her because I didn't have any. What do you want, like, all my time? Is that what you want? Wouldn't that seem like goofy questions if she knew that what I really wanted was her love? So as we go to prayer now, I want to take a moment and just be quiet and let God speak to our hearts. Because it isn't just, hey, these are things that are wrong, because the only reason God would say that is because he loves you, but that we would hear him say, I love you. Let's get back to that. Let everything else get put in place. Would you pray with me? God, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for how you've spoken to us. Lord, give us a moment and just hear you. Tell us that you love us. That you still want us. And you still love us and you still want our love. With a heart that says no to the things, Lord, that are against you. And a soul that says yes to every appetite to you. Hand it to you for fulfillment and then out of that overflow to love others. In a mind that is properly apportioned in your word. So we know that that heart that could be desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, that we could override that at times when it craves something that clearly it shouldn't or doesn't set the limit it should, I should say. Oh God, that you would even love us and want us. That's just amazing to me. That you created us to love you. Which means if you created us to love you, you've put within us all the wherewithal and the only thing left is our choice. I recognize, just as this began, that it starts with us choosing our sacrifice. And I recognize that the only sacrifice that is perfect is your son. So, I just want to thank you for giving me your son as an option for which I boldly claim as my Lord and Savior. His death for my sins on the cross, all the payment necessary. His resurrection, clear proof that there's a new life to be lived and in this new life, God, you are now my first love.
please forgive me. Please forgive us. For where we have loved amiss. By putting anything in competition with you versus the overflow of our love for you. So please, God, today, cause us to genuinely love you with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our minds. Please. And may we sense the delight of that surrender to you. Lord, as we make the choices even today, which things we say yes to, which things we say no to, which things we let occupy our minds, may they all testify of our love for you. God, I would love to even say I love you with most of these things, but I ask you, a God of the impossible, that you would cause me, Lord, to love you with all of them. And then from loving you with all my heart, with all my mind, with all of my soul, that I would be able to love then my wife and my children and this fellowship and the world in the right way, the way you would intend, from a satisfied soul. So please, today, we ask, make us people that when other people know us, they would say, oh, those are the God lovers. And they love each other as well. And then build all religion around that, please. In Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, you know if there's anyone here who has yet to say yes to that gift. Look at wherever you're at at the moment. If you've never said yes to the gift of Jesus Christ, the Bible says if you're willing to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. This whole thing starts with saying yes to the gift of Jesus. Savior, because he died on the cross for your sins. Resurrection, so that you could say that there's you. it tells us whoever is in Christ is a new creation. And if that's you, I just want to pray this prayer. Listen, and if you agree at the end, give a confident amen in what you're saying. As I agree, let that be my prayer. And here's the prayer. God, I'm a sinner like men are sinners. I'm one. And the wage of that sin is death. I stand before you with my iniquity separating us. But I believe you so loved me that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for that sin. Just like scripture promised. And he was buried. And just like scripture promised on the third day, he rose again. And because of that, you've given me a choice. You've done all the work. And all you've asked me to do now is to choose my sacrifice. And I choose Jesus as my Savior at the cross and at my Lord at the resurrection. Have my life now. And Lord, make it everything you intend. Satisfy this soul now. Bring it to overflow that I would love others the way you call me to. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you simply to say, Amen. God, you've heard our prayers. Cement that conviction in our hearts now and lead us to that which brings you pleasure in our lives. May we now commit the rest of our life to saying yes and no in a manner that demonstrates our love for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.